We just sang some very beautiful words as they apply to us all. Praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. Just what does that mean? This passage that is before us will uh, speak to that very phrase. Have you ever heard anyone say this? Uh, you know, the Ten Commandments don't really apply to us anymore. I live not under the law, but under grace. Those commandments are a bunch of ancient rules for an ancient group of people. We are a New Testament church, and so things like the Ten Commandments don't apply to us. Now I ask if you'd ever heard anyone say that. Maybe you have said that yourself in terms of thinking about the law of God. As I read our scripture today from James chapter 2, I want you to ask yourself, what, what does James say here in terms of, is there an application for the law of God for us, for people who claim to be Christ followers? And then, beyond that, what about everybody else? Does it apply to anyone else out there, or is it just people that believe the Bible to be the Word of God? In James chapter 2, we will begin with verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy <clears throat> to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, as we bow before you, we thank you for your word that is truth. Will you enable us to be taught today by your spirit, whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness for us. Will you teach us through your word? Will you apply it? Will you give us hearts that are open to you 
We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, <clears throat> by way of background, we're going to, we're going to start with some general teaching about, uh, about the, the law itself. And then we're going to dive into this passage and see the application of uh, what he has to say this law means to us, for us. What is the law? Well, typically, when you say the law, people think of what we read earlier, the Ten Commandments. And that would be partially right. And in fact, that's what James is referring to here. But let's, let's back up and see the bigger picture, because if you talk about the law of God in the Old Testament, you're talking more uh, about several aspects of the law. Instead of ten commands, you have some 600-plus commands, because it would include what uh, is called the ceremonial law and the civil law and the moral law. Now, the ceremonial law, uh, if, you, if you looked in the New Testament to see what it says about the ceremonial law, and ceremonial law would be that which uh, has to do with the tabernacle, with uh, the modes of worship, with sacrifices, uh, with the feasts, and so on. In the book of Hebrews, it calls the ceremonial law a shadow of good things to come. Now, what were the good things? Well, it was Christ. Everything in that uh, Old Testament ceremonial law was pointing to our salvation, pointing to the gospel. It was foreshadowing it. And that's why Hebrews calls it pointing to good things which are to come. So, when Christ came, when he died on the cross, he fulfilled the ceremonial law which is now no longer necessary. Because that which was foreshadowed came into fruition. And then you have the, the civil law. Now, if you're uh, this January made your resolution, said, I'm going to read through the Bible, you probably got just about, before you got discouraged, you probably just about got to uh, the civil law. <laughs> and that's where a lot of people drop out because that's where you, you see laws about uh, lawsuits, um, diet, uh, lots of cleanliness, sanitation laws, and, you know, you just find yourself just shaking your head and saying, wow, this, this, is, uh, this is hard stuff to get through. Talks about crime, punishment, things like that. Well, the, the civil law was indeed for the people of Israel to teach them how to live, how to live together and live among other people. And so that, too, was for a specific time for a specific people. And then you have the moral law. That's what we're going to focus. We just need to know all this by way of uh, uh, background. In fact, it's interesting that 
even the way the, that the law was given shows the, the difference between the moral law, which, how was it given? It was given on stone tablets. Do you remember the movie? <laughs> You've seen it. Mo- Moses, I want to say Charlton Heston came down, but <laughs> Moses came down. And he had his stone tablets, two of them. We talk about the two tables of the law. When we talk about the two tables of the law, uh, the first table of the law, commandments one through four, are specifically about our relationship with God. Now, they all have to do with our relationship with God, but those are specific to him. And then the last six commandments are specifically about our relationship with one another. And so that's the two tables. Now, a lot of folks think of, uh, and maybe from the movie, I don't know, but think of the the two tables, one through four might have been written on one tablet and uh, five through ten on the other, but that probably wasn't the case. They were probably, all ten were written on both of them, and you can go back and see there was a specific use for each of those tablets. But Here's the point. What was it written on? Something permanent. It was on the stone, as opposed to the the civil law, the ceremonial law, written on something temporary, parchment, vellum, on scrolls that would pass away, on skins. Okay, what about the giving of the law? Well, technically, we tend to think of the giving of the moral law as what happened at Mount Sinai. And that's true. That's when it was codified. That's when it was written down, so to speak. But we need to actually think in terms of the law being there from the very beginning. Adam and Eve had the law. How would they know whether they broke it unless they had it? They had the law, it was in their heart, it was communicated directly from God. Cain and Abel, when Cain killed Abel, murder was already wrong. It didn't become wrong at Mount Sinai. So the law was there all along, it's just with Moses, then it is put in code form so it could more easily be passed down. Okay, and then we consider the the purpose of the law. Well, the law is a summary of God's will, both inward and outward for us. How are we to live? This is the summary. Now, we talk about the Ten Commandments, but we need to understand that it it goes beyond those ten because uh, uh, we see even in the Old Testament that it's expanded in terms of... uh, what all is included, for instance, under adultery and that type of a thing. And then Jesus certainly in the New Testament expands it. and says, look, it's not just if you do these things outwardly. If you think these things in your heart. So that was the law. The outward and the inward, the will of God for us. But it also points to our own sin and our need Christ. This is what Romans 3 says uh, in verse uh, 20. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what it's saying is that that you're not going to be in good standing before God by keeping the law. In fact, what happens is we see the law, we see the standard, and that causes us to know where we have broken it. And it shows us, it reminds us that we cannot keep it. And what does that do? It drives us to an answer for, well, then how can we be in right standing before God? And so it points us to Christ in terms of the purpose of the law. It shows its severity and punishment that's demanded for disobedience of it. But then it shows, it points us to how Christ fulfilled that on the cross. And we will get back to that in a moment. So who's obligated to keep it? We asked that question earlier. Uh, Again, in Romans 3, verse 19, it says, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So ultimately, everyone, whether you believe the Bible or not, whether people acknowledge the Bible as the word of God or not, they have the law, it's written on their heart, and they are responsible and they are accountable before God. But what about Christ followers? Would we say, we're not under law. We're just under grace. We're New Testament. You know, those things that I I said earlier. Well, think about what the, the New Testament tells us in terms of the summary of the law. What's the summary? Well, the summary is you love God and you love your neighbor. Isn't that the two tables of the law? Love God. Love your neighbor? Should Christians love God and love their neighbor? (laughs) Well, of course. I mean, it's preposterous to say that we we are not obligated to do that which the law calls us to do because that is our very calling. Now, we do it not to be saved, but because we are in relationship with God. We love him, and then, because we are in relationship with him, we love one another. So yes, we are obligated to keep the law. Christ followers of all people ought to be keepers of the law. Not just out of obligation, but out of gratitude for what's been done for us. Now, let's get into James and see the nature of the law. Uh, First of all, it is a perfect whole. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. It is a perfect whole. Robert Philip Hansen was a, a former... FBI, counterintelligence. He had a long career, and he is, they believe, responsible for the the worst intelligence breach in U.S. history, according to some. 
He is a self-confessed traitor. But he also professed faith in Jesus Christ. Interesting combination. Uh, Throughout his career, he was known, among others, for saying, look, you know, if you don't have this religion, then you won't be saved. He was known for his moral living when other agents would have parties and things where they would go to various clubs, strip clubs and that kind of thing. He said, I'm not going. That is sin. He was known for that. And so you can imagine when he was caught and when he confessed as a traitor that many of his friends were just stunned by it. They couldn't put it together. One friend was interviewed in the Charlotte Observer. And his assessment was this. He said, the only thing I can speculate is that he must have been able to compartmentalize his life deluding himself into thinking that espionage was simply an exciting intellectual challenge that had nothing to do with leading a good, moral, Christian life. Now, if if that friend was right, then Mr. Hansen had said, well, I, you know, my faith is one thing, and there's morality in these areas, but I can compartmentalize over here and, and, and do this espionage, be a traitor, be deceitful, and all of those things, and it's not going to affect this. And James would say, no way. It's a whole. It's a perfect whole. I had a professor when I was in seminary that told a story about when he was a a student in college. He worked at a a hotel, and uh, his boss called one day, and he said, look, I've got a friend who is coming in this afternoon, and uh, I've got a reservation for him for a room and all of that, and he's going to be making use of the hotel, and... If his wife calls, you tell her that he is not there. Now, this professor who was at that time a college student, he said, well, I can't do that. I'm not going to lie. Boss says, you better lie. It means your job. And they went back and forth and Finally, the young college student said, okay, if you want me to, I will lie for you today. But then he said, but you had better watch your cash register because if I lie for you today, there is nothing to restrain me from stealing you blind. The boss relented. 
You see, what, what he was saying was basically this. Look, if I, if I, my life is not compartmentalized. If I break it down in this area, all bets are off. I'm, I'm free to do all those things because I might as well, I have broken the law of God. I have become a transgressor. If you break God's law and will in one area of our life, we are a transgressor. James, no doubt, had heard Jesus say in his ministry in Matthew 5, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now here's what this addresses. What James addresses, what Jesus addresses. It addresses this question. Suppose you were to die tonight and stand before God, and He said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? It addresses those people who at that point would say, well, I am uh, I'm no Osama bin Laden. I'm, I'm not a murderer. I'm just God going to have to trust that when you get out your big scale in the sky and you see the bad things that I've done, I'm, of course I've done some bad things. But I've also done a lot of good things. And I'm just going to have to trust that the good things are going to outweigh the bad things. And believe me, there are many who are hoping against hope that that's the case. James and Jesus have said, if that's what you're hoping in, you've got no hope. Because if you break one, that scale will never come back again. (coughs) James says it's not about your volume of sin. It's not about just if you've done one of the biggies, then you're in trouble. It's if you've done any. In fact, in the New Testament, There are several places where it talks about those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. Paul, for instance, in Romans 1 says this. He talks about those that were filled with all kinds of unrighteousness. Then he uses these phrases, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife. Who puts those in the same category? Murder and envy? Come on. He slams murder right between these two things that people think aren't too bad. Oh, I envy a little bit. Maybe sometimes I am strident. He says, you're a murderer. 
envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God. Gossips and haters of God? Insolent, haughty, means prideful, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's in the same category? Inventors of evil, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He's saying if you've ever gossiped, you don't deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. If you've ever disobeyed your parents, you don't deserve, you do not deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. If you've ever envied, ever, once, one time, you do not deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how can those all be in the same category? Because of what he says then in verse 11. It's not only a whole, it has a common source. For he who said, and that's God, do not commit adultery, also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The whole law is from the same source. He could have have changed this. He said, well, he, he could have said, well, He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't envy. He who said, do not murder, also said, don't disobey your parents. And he's saying, you know, we've got to get in our mind that we are before a holy and a perfect God. That's why these are in the same category. I was sitting in a waiting room, and I don't even remember where it was now, but I I remembered the article and I often do this, we'll take notes on an article, and I tend to see magazines that I don't necessarily take at home, and I I picked up a Popular Mechanics, and on the front was a picture of a bridge, and inside was the story about the Peace Bridge, they called it. It was a proposed bridge that uh, they were going to uh, build from Alaska to Siberia supposed to be a 50-mile-long bridge. Now, in that article, it was talking about what a challenge that would be and that kind of a thing. And it talked about the structure of bridges. And you engineers, you know all this, but let me just uh, say what the article was saying. It talked about one guy who was uh, driving in North Carolina one night, late at night. It was kind of a foggy night. And he got on a bridge, a 225-foot bridge. And he was driving across, and right at the end of the bridge, he lost control, he swerved, and he hit the last truss on that 225-foot bridge. The last truss. The entire bridge collapsed because of That one little truss, just one. You see, that's what James is saying here. He's saying it's a whole. And it all fits together. That's the law. If you break one, you are a lawbreaker and you are guilty. And that's because he is a perfect and holy 
and righteous God. So what's the answer? Well, in 12 and 13, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, he, has, he had just talked about how showing partiality to, to one over another, because that's not loving one another as you ought to, you have become a transgressor. And here he is uh, saying, if you don't show mercy, you're not going to be shown mercy. And he uses this phrase, speak and act. Uh, and he continues to put those two together, that our, our speech and our actions need to fit together, and they ought to be a reflection of our heart. And those need to always fit together. And then he talks about the law of liberty. Now, what I've said so far about the law could make the law sound very negative if we're not careful. But it's not. He calls it the law of liberty. It's a positive thing. There is a freedom in knowing what God's will for our lives really is. Imagine you send a child out in the backyard and let's say you've, you know, you're in a neighborhood, you've got all these yards where you can see them all and so on. You, you say to your child, okay, uh, you can go out and play with your ball back there, but do not go outside of our yard. And if you do, you're in big trouble, and I mean it. You always got to add that last part, and I mean it, okay? You're in big trouble, okay? Now, the child's back there. They're in the middle of the yard. They're playing, kicking the ball around, and so on. The ball rolls over towards the neighbor's yard, and the child knows, because the parent said, and I mean it, that knows that i got to be careful here. And so he walks over there, and he's, he's scared. He, what if mom and dad's looking? What if I step over the line? There's my ball right there, and so on. You see how, how unsure that is? Now, take the same scenario with a a yard with a fence. I don't want you to go outside of our yard, and I mean it. The child's back there, they're playing, they're kicking the ball, and they can run all over that yard. The ball can go up against the fence. They can go right up to it because they know that they're not going to go outside the yard. They know where the border is. There is a freedom in that. And that's what James is saying here that this is a gift to God's people so that you know what God desires for his children. Now, in what sense, though, that last phrase, does mercy triumph over judgment? I want want to point to just one Old Testament verse because it's such a, a picture, I think, picturesque summary of this in Psalm 85, and I'll just read it to you, verse 10, Psalm 85, 10. It says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace. Where in this world, where in this universe did righteousness and the peace of God 
kiss. It was on the cross. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that purchased the peace of God for us. Justice demands judgment. And mercy pleads for pardon. God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment, not because it's more important, but justice was perfectly fulfilled by the righteous one who lived, he lived the life that we were called to live. And then he died the death that we deserved to die. And it was all on the cross for those who receive it by faith. See, I think too often we tend to think of the the stone uh, Ten Commandments, and we think if I, if I break one, I'll just, I, I just, it's almost like taking a chisel and chipping it off and saying, whoa, I messed up there. Instead, we ought to have a picture in our mind of, of the, the stone tablet, and we break one commandment, and we start to chisel it off, and the whole thing crumbles into a pile of dust. And the only one who can fix that is Jesus. And that's what he did on the cross. So the question, really the only question, is what's going to triumph in your life? Is it going to be you hoping against hope that you can pull it off and you can outweigh your bad works? Because if that is your hope, you're out of hope, according to the Scripture. If this Scripture is true, then you have no hope in that. Or will it be mercy, grace, that triumphs? Where the perfectly righteous one, Jesus Christ, has paid for my sin, and I will trust him, And that is my hope. That is the gospel. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together.